0: Welcome back to the Big Amateurs of Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a real quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamatrism.com My podcast materials can also be found on all the major third-party directories, Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, all those places. And then I have some stuff in a blog that you might want to check out. And the name of the blog is keredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X dot. Okay, today is Monday, October 25th, 2021. And I want to talk today about Miles Brand's conceptualization of the collegiate model, which is a financial framework for the relationship between revenue-producing sports and athletes and the rest of the college sports marketplace. The term the collegiate model has been used for a number of different purposes. Its public expression has been used almost exclusively by the NCAA, the Power Five, and in system stakeholder beneficiaries as a substitute for amateurism, Synonym for amateurism. And amateurism has some baggage now. So the NCAA has used the collegiate model. The Commission on College Basketball did that. It was clear they were trying to pivot away from amateurism, even though they were litigating amateurism at the same time in this Austin case. But I'm going to talk about the collegiate model as Miles Brand defined it in his 2006. State of the Association speech, which was the centennial of the NCAA, Brand had been working hard and his people behind the scenes at the NCAA national office had been working hard to put together a transformative speech that would justify and reconcile the increasing tension between the professionalized, commercialized products of football and uh, men's basketball at the Power Five level and the intellectual and educational mission of higher education. The title of that speech is the Principles of Intercollegiate Athletics. And the reason I wanted to really talk about the collegiate model in some detail now, I did a couple of episodes on it in my pay for play series. And I think those were episodes 19 and 20. But in a nutshell, what this means, what the collegiate model means as a financial framework is that universities, big time universities, and this applies only to big-time Power Five-like athletics departments and programs and universities that have the capacity to generate enough net revenue to take that money and basically pay for the rest of the athletics department interest, including non-revenue sport scholarships. Although that has been the keystone of the financial framework for big-time college sports since 2006. Actually, before that, but it, it was justified by Brandon in 2006. But the NCAA and in-system stakeholders have been very cautious to talk on those terms publicly because there's some huge flaws in this theory that I'm, I'm going to discuss. And in the lead up to their congressional campaign in 2020, this collegiate model was not really on the table. And the only witness to reference it in a way that you could say, yeah, she's talking about Miles Brand's conceptualization of the collegiate model was Rebecca Blank, who is the... Chancellor at University of Wisconsin-Madison. I think she just recently accepted the job at Northwestern, but she's much like uh, Linda Livingstone. She wears a bunch of hats. She's on both the Division I Board of Directors for the NCAA and also the NCAA Board of Governors. But at a September 15th hearing in the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee, Blank made a reference to the collegiate model as this diversion of wealth. That's just what universities do. And we need to preserve that because we couldn't pay for athletics if we didn't have that. That's one of the one of the talking points. We w- These major universities wouldn't be able to pay for their athletics programs if we didn't take all this revenue from football, and basketball. And that's ridiculous on its face because we're talking about some of the most wealthy powerful institutions on the planet and i'm going to talk a little bit about how absurd that uh, belief that these big-time universities the athletics departments absolutely have to be self-sustaining and anything else will be a corruption of the intellectual and educational mission and we can't spend a penny of general university operating expenses on athletics all that stuff but at this hearing on september 30th of 2021 the collegiate model as miles brand conceptualized it was right on the table It was unmistakable, even though nobody used the phrase the collegiate model. Nobody talked about Miles Brand. Nobody went back and talked about the history of how this financial framework came into big-time college sports. And that's important as well because it was used in a way at this September 30th hearing that supported the gender and race-based equity arguments that Linda Livingstone and the NCAA-friendly witnesses were making. But you can't really have a complete understanding of the business of big-time college sports without understanding exactly what Miles Brand intended by his formulation of the collegiate model in 2006. So what I'm going to do, I think, is go ahead and get into the formulation of the collegiate model under Brand's tenure as the NCAA president and go through his State of the Association speech in January of 2006. And then on the back side, look at how that model was explicitly applied by Linda Livingstone at this hearing last month and also suggested and reinforced by the testimony of the other NCAA-friendly witnesses, including Mark Emmert, and how they manipulated Miles Brand's collegiate model and conformed it to the equity arguments, these divisive equity arguments that were pitting the interests of these male revenue-producing athletes against the interests of women and non-revenue-producing athletes downstream. And I think it's important that this theory was channeled through a university president a power five university president because when miles brand conceptualized the collegiate model he as a former university president had surrounded himself with other university presidents as part of an initiative that coincided with the centennial to take a good hard look at what division one athletics looked like and what it should look like in the future and he put together a panel in 2005 that was titled the ncaa presidential task force on the future of division one intercollegiate athletics i'm going to talk a little bit about that but so much of these justifications for the exploitation model, big-time college sports, came from the very presidents who were brought in through the work of the Knight Commission in the early 1990s to pull back on commercialization and professionalization. And they are now the fox in the henhouse. And the role of university presidents in formulating the conceptualization of the business model and then directing the future of college sports is so important now because I think this constitutional committee that should be coming out with its initial recommendations in three weeks, two or three weeks, is going to have to look at whether or not presidents should still be calling the shots here. I think when those recommendations come out, we're going to be able to look at this September 30th hearing and probably have a much better understanding of precisely what it was that Linda Livingstone was trying to accomplish that may not have been apparent from the substance of her testimony. So for context, it's important to understand that Miles Brand became the NCAA president in 2003. And coming into Brand's presidency, you had a history of NCAA presidents that simply didn't speak the language of the academic community. So the first NCAA president, Walter Byers, was in that position from 1951 to 1987. He built the modern NCAA. We've talked at length about that. And the pay for play series is a good way to go through historically and look at the evolution of the NCAA in in the modern era. And that really began in the fifties with Walter Byers and Walter Byers had virtually no connection to the academic world. He had been a sports journalist before he came to the NCAA or actually to the big 10 he went into the big 10 as an administrator and then became the NCAA's first full-time CEO. But he was a business guy. He wanted to do deals. And in that 2004 book by Keith Donovan, The 50-Year Seduction, Donovan talks about the buyer's era and how he built the modern NCAA. He built the television empire and really created the blueprint for uh, what is now the NCAA, all the essential components of the NCAA's authorities and powers and priorities and governance structure came from Walter Byers. He was a complete outsider to the academic world. Then when Byers left, an athletics director guy came into the president's office, and that was Dick Schultz, who had been the AD at the University of Virginia. And then there was a controversy regarding some things he did at UVA and on the financial side, and he was forced to resign quietly. And then a guy named Cedric Dempsey, also an athletics director type, came into the NCAA presidency after Schultz, and he served in that role until Brand took over but into Dempsey's tenure there was an increasing criticism from external commentators in the academic community. So much of this came from within the academy, and they were looking at the NCAA, looking at the NCAA national office, and there were all kinds of of corruption issues in terms of how money was being spent at the national office, and uh, using the NCAA plane for private golf trips, and whining and dining, and crazy expense accounts, and the NCAA national office doing their best imitation of lifestyles of the rich and famous, and all of the things that I think they should be looking at now because I think some of that same stuff is going on. But the criticism, because it came from the academy, it carried some cachet that criticism from other communities wouldn't. And that's because all of this was occurring and this corruption at the national office was occurring in the context of higher education. And there was increasing criticism about the tension between this highly commercialized, professionalized product that was being led by these out of control athletics interests and the academic and intellectual mission of the institutions and of higher education more broadly so coming into the early 2000s when Dempsey was really on the ropes and there were Books being published out of the academic community. The Mellon Foundation was influential in getting some research out. You had the Knight Commission openly criticizing the NCAA national office. You had individual academicians like Murray Sperber, Indiana, writing books, and Andrew Zimbalist at Wellesley, he wrote a book on paid professionals. There were a lot of criticisms of the business structure, and a lot of them revolved around the concern that even though university presidents had come into power at the Board of Governors and Division I Board of Directors level, they really weren't in control of the NCAA national office. Remember that the Knight Commission's work, its seminal work, came out in 1991, and the perceived cure for all this corruption in big-time college sports Was for presidents to assert control and responsibility for intercollegiate athletics and that gave rise to this movement that coincided with a change in the governance structure in 1996-97 that eliminated one school one vote governance and, and legislative process and went with a federated system top heavy with big time powerful football interests. And that was, I've talked about that as well, but you had this kind of new governance thinking that this was going to be the way to solve all the problems in college sports. And now we have university presidents sitting on the division one board of directors and sitting on the NCAA board of governors, but there was still this perceived disconnect between that new leadership and the national office. And then in 2001, enter Miles Brand. Dr. Miles Brand, who at the time was president of Indiana University. And he gave a speech at the National Press Club in 2001 while he was still president of IU that I described in one of my early episodes as one of the most consequential speeches in the history of college sports because he came in to that speech just having fired Bob Knight, the Indiana basketball coach who was a legend and who wielded enormous power in Indiana and many people thought that he was untouchable he did whatever the heck he wanted to at IU and if people didn't like it he just told them what to do with it and he was just on about his business and then there were a series of events that got some media attention including an altercation that he had with a player on the court and then another incident that followed that. And Brand initially capitulated to Knight, but then put together a zero-tolerance policy. And then when Knight did something frivolous to violate the zero-tolerance policy, Brand fired him. And all of a sudden, he's the toast of the town and he's struck a blow for the integrity of college sports and he took down one of these coaches these legendary imperial coaches who made a mockery of the authority structure in the universe all that stuff you heard all of this stuff but miles brand in academic circles was a hero i mean he was the man in 2001 so he comes into this National Press Club speech, and he was invited to talk there because he had just fired Bob Knight. And I I talk about this both in episode 19, and then I think I also talk about this in episode 2 or episode 3. And that is this movement away from the athletics director model in NCAA leadership and into the former university president leadership model. But I think that's one of the most important transitions that's occurred in the modern era of big time college sports in large part. Because the two university presidents we've had, Miles Brand and Mark Emmert, have done more to fuel the commercialization and professionalization of big-time football and big-time men's basketball than any athletic director ever could. And they've done it without any criticism from the academic community. And that is a product, I believe, of this irrational collegiality that exists within the ivory tower, where... One university president simply not gonna criticize another. The lack of curiosity and the lack of pressure from within the academic community and the higher education industry on what's really going on at the NCAA national office is a real problem because this national office is just as corrupt as the national office the university stakeholders were criticizing in the 1990s. And in some ways, it's worse, I believe, because there is an immunity shield put around the national office and around Mark Emmert. The criticism of Mark Emmert has not come from within. It has come from external critics. And the truth of the matter is that college presidents are more responsible than any other stakeholder group for creating the corruption and dysfunction in college sports regulation and the hypocritical insistence on revenue maximization. And that comes through in this September 30th, 2021 hearing and the way that the collegiate model was manipulated and used by Linda Livingstone, Mark Emmert, and then NCAA and Big 12 lobbyists and lawyers. But, you know, Walter Byers in his 1995 book on sportsmanlike conduct, exploiting college athletes, which had an expose quality to it. He just came out and said, look, the university presidents, the ones who have been complaining about the integrity of college sports and the integrity of higher education, they're the real problem here. And they're just class A hypocrites. And it is very difficult to argue with that. I mentioned this book before. I think I talked about it in episodes 19 and 20, but in 2018, Joe Nocera wrote a book titled Indentured, The Battle to End the Exploitation of College Athletes. And he devotes some chapters to this transition into presidential leadership. He doesn't really talk about the long-term consequence of that, but he, he talks about Miles Brand and Kind of the the education of Miles Brand and coming from this firebrand critic of big time college sports, which is how he presented himself in that 2001 speech to the National Press Club. He was all about saying we have to pull back on commercialization and professionalization and we have to decrease revenue streams. Not increase them, but decrease them. And what he was saying in that 2001 speech was exactly what he thought the academic critics of big-time college sports wanted to hear. And so he was carrying that mantle, and Nosira talks about that. He devotes a chapter to it titled The Branding of, of Miles Brandon. This is a good book. I really like indentured. This was published after the O'Bannon case, and I think Nocera had a front row seat to that and was talking a lot about the O'Bannon case and some of the themes that developed in that case. And the collegiate model was one of them, but when Nocera talks about the collegiate model, he's talking about really the definitional conflation of the interests of professionalized, commercialized sports with the values of higher education. And that was one component of Miles Brand's conceptualization of the collegiate model, but Nosira doesn't really talk about the financial framework, this massive redistribution of wealth. And he says nothing about the racial component of that transfer. So there really hasn't been much written on that. Actually, I haven't found anything that has been written directly addressing the purposeful formulation of the collegiate model and insinuation into the business thinking of big-time college sports and the racial component of the transfer of wealth from football, men's basketball to downstream, largely white beneficiaries. That just hasn't been on the table. But when Nosir is talking about this transition from Cedric Dempsey to Miles Brand. He says, in 2002, they got Dempsey to resign and replaced him early the following year with a favorite son, a university president who had made a name for himself by firing perhaps the most famous coach in all of college basketball, and a man who said all the right things about the need to subsume athletics to a university's academic mission. His name was Miles Brand. Little did they realize that they had just hired the Fox to guard. The hen house. And Nosira is absolutely right. And in my episode 19, I do a compare and contrast between Miles Brandt's 2001 speech before the National Press Club and then a a speech that he gave to that same audience in 2006 after he is NCAA president, after he has basically capitulated to increasing commercialization and professionalization of college sports i use quotes from both of those speeches i have audio i went back to the speeches themselves and you can track them down online and i pulled some clips to show the the obvious irreconcilable tension between the position that miles brand was taking in 2001 while he was still a university president and then the position he was taking in 2006 when he was launching perhaps the most consequential justification for the big-time college sports business model in college sports history, and they simply cannot be uh, reconciled. He's just on a different planet when he's talking about purposefully maximizing revenue in football, men's basketball, when five years before he said, we had to decrease revenue streams to preserve the integrity of higher education. I mean, it's just stunning a stunning about-face, and there's been virtually no discussion about that in the academic community. And I think it's important to reinforce, as I mentioned earlier, that at this time, in this 2006 timeframe, when Miles Brand is really putting the finishing touches on this collegiate model theory, he's surrounded by university presidents that are engaged in looking at the future of Division One and really amplifying the message that Brand put out in 2006. And on the race issue, I just want to point something out. 2006 wasn't that long ago, 15 years ago. When you go back and you look at who the actual university presidents were, who were sitting on these task forces, who were sitting in the NCAA president's office, who had the ear of Miles Brandt, and who were out pontificating in public at every opportunity about the integrity of higher education, the academic and intellectual mission of higher education, the language that the Knight Commission was speaking in the early 1990s, that they're not even speaking anymore. They're not talking about academic integrity. They're talking about the integrity of college sports, which means preserving the status quo and preserving the NCAA's compensation limits. But back in 2006, you had these university presidents being mobilized to speak the language publicly of intellectual and academic purity and the values of higher education writ large, while at the same time, They are running interference for Miles Brand's conceptualization of the collegiate model that demanded, that mandated the maximum commercial exploitation of big-time football and big-time men's basketball is just a stunning hypocrisy. And that duality that Walter Byers identified early in the game. But that duality has come to define the modern university presidency and you have these people sitting in the captain's chair at their institution publicly proclaiming all this propaganda about academic mission and intellectual mission and the integrity of higher education and all this garbage, while they are at the same time knowingly, purposefully, and dishonestly dispatching their lieutenants and sitting on these conference boards and giving the control over the commercialized component of the product to the conference commissioners, to the athletics directors, to the imperial coaches, to the outside corporate influences, some of which now have actual physical space on campus. (laughs) You know, so these university presidents have IMG Sports and they have ESPN and they have these shoe companies with physical space on campus to exploit the commercial capacity of big-time college sports, yet they are publicly decrying the commercialization of big-time college sports. And that's not just a problem with the big-time college sports marketplace. It is a problem with higher education. And the garbage that we heard from Linda Livingstone on September 30th of 2021 is really not that different from the garbage that we have heard for decades now. And the garbage that has come from all these task forces and all these commissions and all these independent inquiries that have been controlled by the NCAA one way or another. It is just this internal propaganda machine that just spews out propaganda. And when it comes from the NCAA, some people may be skeptical, but then when it comes from a Power Five University president purporting to be independent of the NCAA, then it's credible. But they're all in bed together. And what makes that hypocrisy almost insufferable is the self-righteousness with which these university presidents and these task forces and these independent commissions voice their opinions. Back when I was talking about the NCAA's infractions and enforcement case against NC State, I was trying to explain how university presidents think about that process and trying to get into the head of Carol Cartwright. She's a university president, ultimate NCAA insider. She's on the Knight Commission. She's served in all these roles. But that thinking, that hypocrisy is just in the DNA of the way that these university leaders think about their relationship or college sports relationship to higher education and I wanna go back to this presidential task force because that sentiment, that mentality runs primarily through the sensibilities of privileged white educators, privileged white university presidents, mostly men. And that hasn't changed. The rhetoric has changed because the times have changed. But the demographic of the decision makers and the people who are actually running the show here, both in higher education and in college sports, hasn't changed that much. When I was going through the O'Bannon files and looking at all of the documents and the evidence that was presented and reviewing the records on appeal, there were a few things that just from a visual presentation, just stopped me in my tracks. And one of them was a page that had grid photos of members of this 2005 NCAA Presidential Task Force on the future of Division intercollegiate athletics that released its findings in 2006 to coincide with the centennial and was a companion part of Miles Brand's transformative 2006 State of the Association speech. When you look at this page, the whiteness just jumps off of it and the first page, I think there were like 52 members, 51, 52 members of this commission. And I'll go through the demographics in a second because I broke that down. But this page that I saw that had the photos looks like it could have been a Chamber of Commerce photo page from the 1950s. Every single person on this page is white and there are 15 photos. There are only two women, two white women, one of whom is Carol Cartwright, and then there are 13 white men, one of whom is, wait for it, wait for it, Mark Emmert. And just the look of that document was just offensive on its face. When you think about how these are the people who are brainstorming on how to justify the commercial exploitation of football men's basketball that have the highest concentration of African-American athletes of any sport in any division. And how to steal that revenue to fund their corrupt national office and then send it downstream to white beneficiaries. These are the people. These are the faces of the people who are complicit in this construction of the business model of big-time college sports. And this is the face of the reality of the business model of big-time college sports. And this is the honest face of that business model. So let me just give you the, the demographic profile of this 2005-2006 NCAA Presidential Task Force on the Future of Division One Intercollegiate Athletics. There were a total of 51 members. Of those 51 members, 48 or 94 percent were white, three were black. Of those 51, 44 of those were male. So 86% of the uh, participants were men. And then when you break it down, race and gender, white men comprise 82% of that task force, white women, 12% of that task force. There were uh, those 51 task force members, there were two black men and one black female one black female and black women have been excluded from ncaa governance and ncaa decision making and ncaa policy formulation more so than any other demographic subgroup and that's why it was even more ironic that the ncaa and their lobbyists and the big 12 lobbyists brought in an african-american woman from division two Whose interests have zero to do with the collegiate model or the big time college sports marketplace, but they brought in an African American woman as the face of the interests that the NCAA was promoting. And it's just, it was fundamentally dishonest to the extent they were suggesting that that is a representative voice in NCAA governance or decision making. But in the rooms that matter, this is the kind of demographic that you see. And in late 2019, Heading into the Senate campaign in 2020, when the NCAA and Power Five were trying to eliminate the athletes' rights movement through all these federal protections and immunities, the most important rooms were filled with largely men and mostly white men. So I've talked in other episodes about this meeting that occurred in December of 2019 as the NCAA and Power Five were trying to formulate their campaign in the Senate. And there was a meeting, I think it was on December 10th, and there were 15 people who attended. They were Power Five only, Power Five conference commissioners, Power Five presidents, some athletics directors, I think. So you had a total of 15 people at this meeting. There wasn't a single woman, not one. And I think 12 or 13 of the 15 were white. So it was a white male meeting for all intents and purposes. And that is... The world that exists at the decision-making level, at the most important tables in all college sports, that's what it looks like. And at that meeting, the Power Five power players basically didn't want Mark Emmert to be the messenger. For this campaign in the Senate, because he was just pissing people off left and right, and his ego was running roughshod over their attempt to try to get Congress to buy in to these federal protections and immunities. Yet there's Mark Emmert, still employed, still making $3 million a year, sitting behind a microphone in Congress, spewing a bunch of dishonest misdirection. That's what he gets paid to do. So let me go now to Brand's speech in 2006. And remember, this is the centennial of the NCAA. And this is a speech that NCAA insiders and people at the national office were really waiting for here. And and I'm going to use a different... Document actually that I used when I talked about this in episodes 19 and 20. There, I was using the NCAA official publication, and it has all the materials from the 2006 convention. And it's there are all kinds of things that I think pull away from the importance of this speech as a standalone speech. But for this discussion, I'm going to use a document that the athletes, the plaintiffs obtained in the O'Bannon. Suit. And it is a draft of this speech on the collegiate model. It's an interesting draft. There's a cover email that is very illuminating. And so I'm going to talk about that to set the context and how this concept this model of revenue maximization and then taking that money and sending it downstream how that component of this speech was so important to the ncaa behind the scenes but the way that this speech is put together it's the final speech it was sent out the day before the speech was delivered to a select group of ncaa executives whose job it was whose primary jobs were to work with the NCAA's champions and corporate partners and licensees to maximize revenue, really from the March Madness contract. That's all they had. And so this is really revolving around the NCAA national office's money. But the theoretical underpinnings of the collegiate model as a financial model also apply to football. This draft is written like a teleprompter speech, and it's interesting because you have these bullet points, and then you have these purposeful pauses, and then you have purposeful emphases, either underlined or capital letters. There's a parenthetical here I'm looking at that has pause. So it's a really interesting window into what the NCAA national office and Miles Brandt really wanted to do when they were presenting this speech. What was the impact going to be? How was it going to be received? And the thinking here was very strategic in terms of how they wanted to message from a messaging standpoint. This was a very sophisticated and I would say somewhat manipulative presentation. This was very carefully thought out. That is clear from the way that this is structured. So what we're going to do is just read this cover memo. It's very short, but boy, does it say a lot about the true motivations of this new characterization of the business model. And so the email is from, the cover email is from Greg Shaheen, who is an NCAA executive. It's dated Wednesday, January 4th, 2016. So actually that's two days before the speech. And it's sent to four NCAA executives, Scott Bearby, who is a, an attorney on staff with the NCAA. He's still there. And then there were three other guys who were no longer there. And they, I, I looked them up and they're in sports media marketing and, you know, how to maximize revenue. That's their thing. A guy named David Knopp, a guy named uh, Peter Davis and a guy named Greg Weidekamp. And the subject is state of the association speech. And it attaches the draft. And it says, confidential, full caps, confidential. I thought you might enjoy a confidential preview of Miles Brand's State of the Association speech to be given this weekend. Lest there be any doubt, the influence of your leadership, vision, and good work is reflected in an entire section regarding revenue generation being okay when tied to the appropriate principles. I can assure you, three years ago, No such premise would have existed in his keynote, and that's reference to Brand. Very, very high compliment to your work. This is very confidential and not for distribution. After the speech, though, let's share it widely with our CCP's and licensees. I do believe it to be meaningful. Thanks, Greg. Wow, there's some important stuff there. And so I think when we talk about this transition of Miles Brand from his 2001 speech into this 2006 speech, this is part of that transformation. And this makes it appear as if the money guys in the NCAA national office just want to exploit the hell out of the revenue-producing products, make as much money as they possibly can. And again, this is largely about basketball because the NCAA doesn't have any control over the uh, football product that's done at the conference and individual school level after the Board of Regents decision in 1984. So this is really about March Madness. And when Shaheen says, lest there be any doubt, the influence of your leadership, vision, and good work is reflected in an entire section regarding revenue generation. Then he says, you know, three years ago, no such premise would have existed in in a brand keynote. Basically, is what he's saying. Brand wouldn't have said this three years ago, which suggests that these people have been working brand and trying to get him to come to Jesus on this maximization of revenue theory. And then he says, very high, high compliment to your work. Basically, you won. You convinced brand that this was the way to go. This is basically the work product that has come after several years of trying to convince Miles Brand that he needs to just be all in on the money side. It's all about the money. This is what I think Nosira was referring to when he said that they let the fox guard the hen house. Who knows at what point Miles Brand said, to hell with academic integrity, to hell with reducing revenue streams and pulling back on commercialization and professionalization. You don't know exactly when that happened, but this clearly suggests that uh, he was under enormous pressure at the NCAA national office to just get on board with this money machine. And then this last bit about, this is confidential, only you can see it right now, but after the speech, let's share it with our CCP's and licensees. That is a direct reference to the NCAA's corporate champions and partners and licensees of the March Madness Tournament. That's the only relationship that the NCAA National Office has to their corporate sponsors and licensees. This has nothing to do with college football. And this is about sending the message out into the field. NCAA exploitation machine is up and running and open for business, and we're going to squeeze every penny we can out of that March Madness contract. This memo is just a perfect window into the climate and culture and the value system of the NCAA National Office. And It is about greed, 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 money, money, money. They're not copying the institutional interests. They're not copying university presidents. They're not copying... Title IX coordinators, they're not copying the Chronicle of Higher Education. They're copying the people who helped put this ideology into a philosophy that could justify to the outside world the naked, unapologetic exploitation of a labor pool comprised largely of African-American men and then shoving money downstream to enough Downstream beneficiaries to make it appear as if that maximization passes the blush test in the nonprofit world. And that's really what Miles Brand's speech is all about. So that's the context. And now, when we get into the substance of this speech, Brand does a few things. He talks about the history of the NCAA, which you would expect at the centennial celebration. And then he devotes a couple of pages to just meaningless presidential speak, fl- fluffy stuff that you really aren't sure what it means. But then he goes on to try to articulate the definition of the collegiate model and He says, and this is a a bullet point fairly early in this speech, we need to better understand what we have wrought. To be the voice and conscience of college sports, to be true to the intent of those in our universities who founded our organization and continue to provide leadership, and yet to be appropriately pragmatic, we need a conceptual framework for college sports that is aspirational, values-based, but realistic, and a centennial is an appropriate milestone at which to reaffirm the underlying structure. I have been calling this framework, quote, the collegiate model of athletics. All right. And then Brand gets right to it. He says, there are three key principles that constitute the collegiate model, namely ones that pertain to the participants, the contests, and the enterprise as a whole. Principle number one. Those who participate in intercollegiate athletics are to be students attending a university or college. And that's just an ode to the student-athlete. And he gets into a bunch of fluffy descriptions of the student-athlete and the importance of it and the value system of big-time college sports. And he says, principle number two, intercollegiate athletic contests are to be fair, conducted with integrity, and the safety and well-being of those who participate are paramount. And... That second component really talks about the competitive advantage disadvantage Uh, markets, and competitive balance, and the infractions and enforcement process, and it's self-serving, and I guess at some level designed to justify that basic regulatory model. And then he goes to principle number three, and really this is the most important principle, and he says that explicitly uh, later on, but intercollegiate athletics is to be wholly embedded in universities and colleges. And the way that he frames that third principle, it doesn't seem initially that he's talking about the financial model. But when he gets to breaking that principle down, that he is talking primarily about the financial underpinning of uh, big-time college sports. I'm not going to talk a lot about the participants or the contests. I want to get right on to this third principle. And let's see, I'm flipping pages here. All right, here we go. Principle number three, The college athletics enterprise. And he says, the third principle that defines a collegiate model of athletics concerns the enterprise as a whole. The central point is that intercollegiate athletics is embedded, is part of the university. This is the most fundamental principle of the collegiate model. Everything else rests upon it. And he says, one critical consequence of this principle is that intercollegiate athletics inherits its values from the university. The same values that underlie the modern American university and college ought to underlie their athletics program. So let's stop right there, because this is, I think, what Nosira was talking about in his discussion of the collegiate model and in indentured in his 2018 book. And this is the way that Brand conceptualized the reconciliation of the tension between the commercialized, professionalized athletic product at big-time football, men's basketball universities, and then the academic mission and the intellectual education mission of the institutions and in higher education more broadly and what he did at the definitional level was to say that athletics was inherently educational and that because the athletics component inherited its values from the university then those two things were inseparable which basically brought together at the definitional level these two forces that to the outside world seem to be operating more in tension than in harmony but that was a predicate to getting to this financial uh, model. And, And that is that at the philosophical level, there's no distinction. We have one big happy amateurism family that can coexist under the umbrella of higher education. And then Brand pivots to this broad discussion of diversity and inclusion and gender equity. And then he invokes this Division One task force, this presidential task force and the importance of presidential leadership. And I think he may be using those things a little bit as a shield here as he transitions into this financial model for big time college sports. And he says, let me return to one final major issue that pertains to the third principle of the collegiate model, namely the underlying financial structure of intercollegiate athletics. There is a significant misunderstanding not only of the financial model for athletics, but how it mirrors the approach for the rest of higher education. He then goes on to explain that universities, and this is just a feature of higher education writ large, universities attempt to maximize their revenues and redistribute those resources according to their educational mission. Universities are not-for-profit corporations, and as such, they do not generate profits, and he underlines profits, for private owners or shareholders, but they do have an obligation to generate significant amounts of revenue in order to support their mission. Brand then says... The basic plan for the university is one of massive redistribution of revenues on the basis of the institution's mission and strategic directions. There is nothing wrong with this approach. Indeed, without it, the modern comprehensive university as we know it could not exist on a smaller but similar scale. The business plan for the athletics department mirrors that of the university. Revenues from all sources are redistributed to provide participation opportunities in a broad range of sports. And then Brand says something that's really important. It's subtle, but this is so important because of the way that the collegiate model has been manipulated in the fall of 2021. So Brand says, in Division One, the revenue sports most often only football and men's basketball, generate resources that are needed to conduct all the other sports in the program. The goal is to maximize the number of student-athletes participating at a competitive level across sports. This is the goal because athletics participation enhances the educational experience of students, and the institution's goal is to provide the best educational experience to the greatest number of enrolled Students, So let's stop right there. Miles Brand is limiting the application and use of the collegiate model as a financial structure to division one revenue sports, namely football and men's basketball, because those are the only two products that generate any revenue to be redistributed. That's it. So this means we are just taken off the table. The rest of Division One, all of Division Two, all of Division Three. Their interests are absolutely irrelevant to the operation of the collegiate model in big-time college sports. It, it, it only exists at what is now the Power 5 level. And then Brand goes on to say, this is critical to understanding the relationship of athletics to higher education, and it bears repeating. We want to maximize the number of student-athletes competing at a competitive level, and we do this because athletics participation enhances the educational experience, and enhancing the educational experience of students is the goal of higher education. That is the collegiate model of sports. And he puts, is in full caps. That is the collegiate model. Basically, that just lays it out right there. And the justification is that we take this revenue and we maximize revenue in football and men's basketball at the Power 5-level schools. And then we take that revenue and we send it downstream to participation opportunities. And if it's spent that way, everything is hunky-dory. And when Brian is talking about Participation opportunities, he's talking about non revenue sports that cannot pay for themselves. And implicit in that is that if we don't take the money from football and men's basketball, and then send it to non-revenue athletes and non-revenue sports, then those sports wouldn't exist. That's similar to what Linda Livingstone was saying in her testimony on September 30th. And that is one of the grand lies that is built into the big-time college sports business model. Because these schools, of all schools in the entire NCAA mosaic, have the money to pay for non-revenue sports out of their general operating expenses. And it's one of those arguments that sounds so appealing on its face that it just becomes part of the narrative. And then another important issue is that brand conveniently omits from that construction of the collegiate model, the fact that most of that money doesn't really go to the downstream beneficiaries or only a small component of it. When you compare the money that's spent on athletics budgets in terms of coaching salaries and uh, staff salaries and administrative overhead and then physical facilities and training facilities and these Taj Mahal recruiting magnets, the amount that's actually paid to the athletes through scholarships is comparatively modest. But he didn't talk about any of those other expenditures because we want to focus now on these participation opportunities because that is the argument that's the winning argument in justifying the maximization of revenue but again the hidden objective here is that by putting this theory out there the ncaa is justifying maximizing revenue for its own use at the national office this is just a green light to bring in as much money as you can possibly bring in because the NCAA gets its hands on all of that money. And we don't know for sure the extent of the revenue streams that inure to the sole benefit of the NCAA national office because they have yet to be subjected to a f- forensic accounting by any external regulatory entity. And, and then brand just starts doubling down. And w- one of the things you just got to love about brand, regardless of what you think about the collegiate model, He just puts it out there. I mean, he's not trying to pretty it up here. And he just goes all in. So he says, while intercollegiate athletics is often criticized for looking like professional sports on the input side, generating revenue. It is rarely understood that intercollegiate athletics and higher education behave like classic nonprofits on the output side in the way that they redistribute those revenues to support their missions. The business of college sports is not a necessary evil, rather it is a proper part of the overall enterprise. And then he says this: commercial activity, meaning, for example, the sale of broadcast rights and logo licensing is not only acceptable, but mandated by the business plan, pumping the gas on the March Madness contract. Then it was CBS only in 2010, Turner joined in, but that was a long-term contract at the time that I think was going to go another 10 years. And then it was re-upped and now it goes into 2032. But what he's saying is we have a mandate to exploit revenue for broadcast rights and logo licensing. And that means one thing, NCAA national office revenue goes up and up and up. Then he says the NCAA acts on behalf of its member institutions in the conduct of intercollegiate athletics. And that includes carrying out commercial activity. And then he talks again about the broadcast media contracts, for example, on behalf of its members. So the NCAA is not doing this for the national office interest. It's doing it on behalf of its members. The NCAA negotiates and manages broadcast media contracts for its postseason championships. The NCAA has an obligation derived from its members to maximize the revenue from these contracts and to manage them following the best business practices. So all this money that the national office is going to be pumping in for, it for itself and then grabbing as much of it as they can, they're doing that for the member institutions. And this ties into what happened at that September 30th hearing just last month and what's going to happen with this constitutional committee. And that is we need to have this money To send to enough downstream beneficiaries to keep them happy enough, dependent enough, and compliant enough to make them think that this whole thing makes sense. That's an important part of this whole charade. And that's what Brand was trying to communicate there. Yeah, we're just going to do this for the membership. And if it just so happens to mean that we have a couple hundred million dollars extra through our next contract with CBS Turner, then so be it. Just coincidence. Then he says, in the past and indeed currently, there's some ambivalence about business issues. To some extent, it is felt that it is improper, not quite right. For the NCAA to be engaged in business activity. Amateur sports should be above all that. Athletics departments need the revenue, but working too hard to generate revenue somehow taints the purity of college sports. And then we have my favorite part of this whole speech. And in this document, there is a bullet point that has a parenthetical that reads, pause for emphasis. So Brand's supposed to pause here. He's swinging for the fence here. And he says, Nonsense. This type of thinking is both a misinterpretation and a misapplication of amateurism. Amateur defines the participants, not the enterprise. There is my pause for emphasis. Let me read that again. Amateur defines the participants, not the enterprise. That is just breathtaking. And that is the profound hypocrisy that I think led a unanimous United States Supreme Court in its analysis of the NCAA's conceptualization and use of amateurism to say, no, we're not buying it anymore. You got some mileage out of the Board of Regents dicta from 1984, and you've been very successful at using this amateurism argument to have your way as a national regulator, but we're done with that. And this is not going to be an immunity shield from antitrust liability. That's just a breathtaking way of thinking about the world. So the enterprise can be professionalized. We want an NFL product for big-time college football. We want an NBA product for Division One, high-level Division One men's basketball. But we're going to define the participants as amateurs. So there you have it. In, in uh, one sentence, one short declarative sentence, the hypocrisy of big-time college sports. And then... Brand goes on to talk about the fact that under this model, athletics departments, these high level Power Five like athletics departments, should be fully self sustaining and they shouldn't have to rely on subsidies from the university. And that's where this comes from. And this is a belief that exists only in the high level Power Five type schools and conferences because those are the only products that generate enough revenue for this theory to make any sense at all. The rest of the NCAA really from the group of five down into the FCS category and parts of lower level division one that don't even play football, for example. And then all of division two, all of division three, those products are underwritten from general university revenues. And then They are budgeted, the expenses and the revenues, as general university expenses. They don't segregate everything uh, into the athletics department budget because all that money comes from the university. They may have a separate athletics budget like any department would have, but they don't expect that those athletics departments are going to be self-sustaining because they they lose money. (laughs) There's not a product that makes money, and that is another Problem with the way that Linda Livingstone and the NCAA-friendly witnesses conflated the interests of the big-time college sports marketplace and the revenue generation component of the collegiate model with the interests of Division II and Division III. It's just it's a ridiculous conflation. But that was the argument they wanted to make to try to manipulate these particular decision makers in congress. And then Brand closes out his speech with some very eloquent language on college sports and the future of college sports. But between the bookends, the president's speak bookends that Brand puts forth in that speech is a darkly cynical business model. And I want to come back to that phrase that Miles Brand used when he was talking about how universities operate at the financial level. He said universities engage in massive redistributions of revenue and that athletics departments should operate the same way. And in this formulation of the collegiate model of intercollegiate athletics, what this amounts to is the massive regressive redistribution of revenue from black laborers to white beneficiaries. That's the long and short of it. That's what it means. And until people hear discussions about the business model, like the one that occurred in this hearing on September 30th of 2021, and make that association, nothing's going to change. And this is perhaps the most essential component of the business model in the way that the in-system stakeholders and decision makers think about college sports. And so the future of college sports is being determined by people who think this is a good thing. Or don't have the courage to talk honestly about why it's a terrible thing or to talk honestly about who the people are in this transfer of revenue, this massive transfer and redistribution of revenue. Who are those people? The NCAA does not want to talk about that unless they're talking about it on the beneficiary side. They refuse to talk honestly about who the laborers are and their value, their true value. this business model so with that i'm going to close this out so this is the collegiate model this is the model that linda livingstone used and i'm going to talk in the next episode and this is going to be a short episode because i was hoping to get this into this episode but i've gone over so in the next episode take this model And then look at what the NCAA, the Big 12, and Linda Livingstone did with it in this September 30th, 2021 hearing. And so with that, I'm going to close this thing out. I just want to thank you for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care.